I want to take you back, if I can, to a, an experience I had some years ago. I was living in Southern California, and I was treated to the tour of one of the most spectacular equestrian estates that um, probably exists in this country. I mean, this was a massive piece of land, spectacular ro rolling hills, and I remember uh, walking uh, through these eucalyptus groves uh, on these horse trails and seeing uh, fountains and waterfalls. There was a there was a horse barn. I, I don't know if you could really call it a horse barn. It was a horse mansion. <laughs> I think the horses, I think, had flat screen televisions, as I recall, to, uh, to, to enjoy. I would have moved in happily if I'd been invited to live there. It was just this incredible, incredible um, edifice uh, to, to horse life. And at the very center of this estate was this uh, remarkable, massive mansion that had been built to suit the taste of the retired chairman of a uh, well-known department store chain. You would know the name if I, if I mentioned it. And he was my host on this particular um, visit. And we were walking around and spent, uh, well, almost two hours together on that particular day. Uh, what I remember most about uh, the time I spent with him was, was really two things. One, I was struck by how incredibly wealthy this man was. And secondly, I was struck by how incredibly empty uh, this guy was. Um, wealth doesn't necessarily create emptiness by any stretch of the imagination, but in this case, it was not enough to fix the much deeper condition of this man's life. Alan's, his name was Alan. His wife had died. His kids were no longer uh, speaking with him for reasons I didn't fully understand. He could name for me no friend in his life that was an enduring kind of friendship. And he was living for no charity, no cause, other than keeping up this monumental uh, property and occasionally showing people around it like this. And as I was spending time with this guy, you know, I just see the kind of the hardness in his face, the sadness in his eyes. It becomes clear to me why um, some time before when Alan had first walked into the church office where I was uh, working, uh, my um, assistant had actually mistaken him for a homeless man. In, in a sense, he was homeless. But even deeper than that, since he certainly had a, a home of sorts, I, I would say that Alan was a heartless man. His problem was heartlessness. Uh, he had a heart that just was not filled up with that which really constitutes the greatest kind of wealth. How many of us would feel like if it were not for love, our lives would be a lot less wealthy than they are? Raise your hand if you feel that in yourself. I mean, that is just so true. <laughs> uh, and I guess it's maybe one of the, those deep truths that's so obvious that we don't talk about it or think about it or maybe even act on it sufficiently. But, but love is the greatest form of affluence. It is, the, it is the most supreme prize of, of, of human life. And, and I would go so far to say that you can actually have all kinds of power and privilege and, and position in life, but if not for love, um, you're, you've missed out on the ultimate kind of influence. I mean, you might go down in the history books, but if you're not in somebody's heart, 
If they're not different because of the impact of your life, your love on their life, you haven't made a dent in this world, no matter how many plaques you're on in this life. The Bible says faith, hope, love, abide, these three. At the end of the day, when everything else is rusted or melted away or evaporated or, or been buried, faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these the scriptures say, is love. Uh, the primary importance and the enduring greatness of love derives from the fact that God is love. The reason why it is such a critical and pervasive part of life is because the creator himself has imprinted upon the creation his life. God, God is love. Now when I say that, it's really important to distinguish what I'm actually not saying because sometimes this does get confusing. To say that God is love is not the same as saying that love is God. Although it can start to feel that way or seem that way in, in the world today, that, that love has sort of occupied the place now in our minds that God used to occupy. As important as love is, having love in my life is not a substitute for having a God at the center of my life, on the throne of my life. In fact, some of the greatest problems that humanity has brought upon itself, if you think about it, are because we took our love of something, our love of self, our love of country, our love of um, tribe or family or political party or football team, talk about a true religion today. We took that love and we elevated it to the place that God should occupy and untethered from God's governance over um, that particular passion, we got ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Just think back over the course of history at how many times uh, people have acted in tremendous devotion with great passion, as you two sings, in the name of love, and done the most horrific kinds of things. Which is why C.S. Lewis observes, I think wisely, that, that when love becomes a god, it's only a matter of time before it becomes a demon. Um, it, it, can become, it can become something that doesn't serve the purposes of the, the god of, of love. So, love isn't God. It can't replace the, the role that God is meant to play at the center of our lives, but love actually is God's preeminent character trait. Uh, love actually is God's primary way of moving. It's the way God rolls. And, and it follows, I think, that if God is at the center of my life or your life or the lives of the people we care about, then then our primary character trait and our preeminent way of moving in this world will increasingly be what? It will be love, that's right. It will be, it will be love. In fact, the genuine evidence of our relationship with God and the primary evidence of our maturation as members of his family or followers of Jesus Christ is that we will in increasingly live and move and have our being and live out our lives for love, for the sake of, of, of the love of God and of others. 
Okay, this is, I'm just giving you basic stuff, right? I know most of you know this. You're not, nobody's had a big aha yet, I don't think. Uh, this hopefully is just foundation. But, but this is what the Bible is teaching us, and, and it teaches us this again and again and again. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them, says the Apostle John. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So again, you can, a person can hang out in church, can go to all kinds of Bible studies, can know all the doctrines, uh, but if love is not the motive thing, is there really intimacy with God? What does the Bible say on that? No, no, there is not yet intimacy with God. Jesus says that the greatest commandment of all in life is to show up at church, tithe, no, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment is to love. The Apostle Paul says that love is the most excellent of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, he says. Let me show you the most excellent way. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in his great ode to love. Paul says that that love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the first thing that will get produced by the presence of the Holy Spirit in a human being's life is a greater capacity for love. I love the way a great preacher of an earlier generation uh, says that, that to actually understand the fruit of the Holy Spirit, all of the different uh, qualities of character that are listed in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, to understand them, you need to really understand love. Because love is the key, it's the thing that fills up all of the other fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is how Donald um, Barnhouse puts it. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Patience, or rather, generosity, is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control, my favorite one, is love holding the reins. If it's not for love, we can't even grow in any of the other really deep and important character traits. Love is the power within all of these other dimensions uh, of character. So, so here's the big question that I want to pose. If, if love is so very important, if it's the key to a life that's truly abundant and good, if love is, is the essence of the most important kind of influence that we can have with our lives in, in this world, if it's the difference between winding up in a condition like uh, that man Alan I described or a condition like Jesus, then what exactly is love? <laughs> and, and how do I live my life for God and towards others with it? Um, what, is, what is love really all about at the core? Um, how do we understand it? Well, I'm so very glad you asked because we're going to spend a lot of time on that topic over these next weeks, uh, thinking about um, what love really is and what it, what it isn't. 
And as the lyric of another old song uh, puts it, love is a many splendored thing. Uh, you got maybe a sense of that even as you were listening to the video a little while ago. Love is a many faceted thing. There's, there are these different currents and streams and nuances in the nature of love. Classically speaking, meaning as, as people over the centuries have thought about the subject of love, they have tended to break it down to sort of four major streams or four major kinds of love. Though they overlap each other and intermix with each other in various ways to produce other kinds of interesting cocktails. But classically, there are at least four kinds of love uh, that, that the ancients are continually uh, waxing on about. Today I want to introduce you just the first of those words because it is, in a sense, the key to understanding the rest. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, and I, I didn't put this quote up, but um, he says, uh, this kind of love is like gin. It goes fine on its own, but it can be mixed with all kinds of other things to improve the quality of every other beverage, is, is what he says. Don't quote me on that. Do not put that on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> Many, many centuries ago, the Apostle Paul was looking out uh, on the world and, um, and was feeling a deep concern about it. In fact, he, he looked at a world that was in such moral and spiritual and social and political crisis at his time that he was pretty convinced that, that he was living in the last days of civilization. Surely it had gotten so bad that God was going to, to decisively act to, to fix this whole problem permanently. And, and, and forever. And, and I know some of us, we look out at our times uh, too, and we just think, wow, you know, we are really in need of divine action in, in our era. Uh, and so perhaps some of what Paul has to say, observing of his age, will resonate with some of us. Listen to how Paul describes the conditions of his time. And he does this in, in a letter he's writing to one of his protégés, a uh, young pastor named Timothy. Mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, uh, elevating again these things to the place that only God belongs. Uh, they will be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without love. And I want you to pay special attention to that phrase, without love, because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. Another point uh, Paul writes a letter to the Christians at Rome, the capital city of the day. He shares with them similar kinds of concerns. Uh, the people of our world, Paul says, have become just so hard-hearted, heartless in a sense. They, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> they, they use the creativity that God gave them to advance goodness, flourishing, beauty, justice, hope, and they actually take that creativity and use it to do things that actually tear at the human spirit and, and break up uh, the human community. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. And I want you to underline that one in your thoughts too. No, no love. 
In both of these passages, uh, Paul is cataloging this long list of negative characteristics and behaviors, and then effectively he sums up the condition by saying that people are living toward others without love or having no love. And in each case, when he, he, he uses that particular phrase, without love or having no love, he's using a particular Greek word, and the Greek word is astorge. Uh, astorge. The implication is th of Paul's teaching is that the reason why people are treating each other so badly is because they suffer from the condition of astorge. He walks around, he sees something really going wrong in human relationships and society, he goes, oh, astorge again, I can see it. You must have a case of astorge. Right? Astorge. Well, astorge literally means to be hard-hearted, unfeeling, heartless. The word astorge is actually a compound word. It, 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 it is made up of the letter A, which means without. Um, like an atheist is somebody without a a theistic belief without a belief in God. A means without, and the word storge, which literally means affection. Affection or heartfulness. Say that word for me, storge. Storge. Uh, not a word we talk a lot about, but we've heard about this word affection. The first four uh, of the four types of love that this world desperately needs, this is me talking here, uh, and maybe especially now in our times, in these last days of conflict and crisis, everywhere we look, the, the particular kind of love that I think we need right now is what the Bible calls affection. Uh, affection. We need to somehow find, again, a deeper kind of affection for uh, one another. Now, what exactly is affection? Well, I went to the, to the um, internet and did a little research on it, and, and basically what is said is that affection in its purest form um, describes the kind of love between a new parent and a nursing baby. That was the first big illustration about that. Now, true confession, I have never actually nursed a baby. <laughs> I, I just should be clear about that. Um, but the closest I have gotten is supplying a bottle to a baby in the, in the middle of the night. How many of you have ever done that? Been there and done this, right? So I think back to uh, when we were just starting to have kids. And I, 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 I remember, you know, I'm dead tired, uh, middle of the night, wah, you know, just incredible misery is happening in the next room or sometimes in the cradle, even in the same room. Amy's done all the heavy lifting with uh, this baby. And uh, so I get, it's my turn to do something. And uh, so I get up and, uh, and I go in and I, um, and I get a bottle and I heat it up and it's, uh, it's mother's milk. I'm heating up this mother's milk. And, um, and I go into the, um, room where the baby is, and I uh, pick up this little pink package, and I settle onto the couch in our family room, and I start cradling the baby as he sucks away on, on, on the bottle, right? This is a very new behavior for me. 
This is something I'm not feeling very competent at. I'm, I'm gazing down at this little pink puckered face and those perfect little eyelashes and he's, he's staring up at me with this, this huge stranger that's hovering over him with really bad pillow hair. You know, he's just looking at me. And we don't know each other very well yet, okay? Um, he is a terrible conversationalist, this kid. Uh, he cannot throw a ball worth anything at this stage of life. And, and I'm this huge hulking guy with morning breath and bad hair. You know, there's just, this is a very strange kind of encounter, obviously, for both of, of us. I, I have a chest that's useless. He'd rather be with mom. I'd rather be asleep. But we're there together, and three things are starting to happen. Three significant movements are starting to, to transpire. Um, first of all, something called need love is starting to develop between us. Um, our baby needs what? Milk. And some assurance that he has not been left on a hillside to die when he starts crying. That's why he's crying. It's because of a need, he, a need for contact, a need for sustenance, a need. And, and so when I reach into the crib, he's sort of pleased to see anybody at that particular moment. He's, he's sort of pleased with that. Second thing that's happening is something that C.S. Lewis calls gift love is starting to develop. Uh, because I know how to heat up a bottle and I have the capacity to give that child what he really needs at that particular moment um, I actually come to enjoy the process of giving him what he needs. I mean, really, some of my happiest memories of my whole life are of having that baby lying on my chest uh, in the middle of the night uh, when I was just so dog-tired and was so stunned by the experience of being, being with that child. And, and, and this interplay of need and gift replays itself over and over again until the line between who is the needer and who is the giver gets really blurry. You know what I'm talking about? I actually need this interaction with him. I feel like he's giving me something by this chance to be in this loop together in this way. Um, and then there's also this third thing, this remarkable third thing that's happening that, that Lewis calls appreciation love that's, that's beginning to develop. You see, the baby seems to like the way I smile at him because his eyes get all a little crinkly. And sometimes behind the bottle, you know, I see the little mouth the corners going up. Right? He seems to like that. And I love the way his eyes get really wide when he's looking up at me. We're still, get this, we're still mostly strangers to one another. He, he doesn't begin to understand me. I don't really begin to understand him. But in time, this affection that's developing, 
this need, gift, appreciation, mysterious swirl is going to ripen and change and grow and develop, there's gonna come a time when it, it will, it, he will look at me as a friend with whom he wants to play. When he could have all kinds of other people, he will want me to be that one with whom he plays. And there's gonna come a day when I will be willing to die for him. Even after he stopped wanting to play with me. I would, without a moment's hesitation, lay down my life for him to spare him harm. But it all begins with this storge, this growing affection. It will become the, the grease, the gin, the catalyst that will make all the other levels of love um, possible. Um, do, you, do, you, do you get this? This makes sense? So affection is always easier to grow when there's this interplay of gift and need and appreciation for the other. But what I really want to underline is that, that the crucial uh, ingredient in the growth of affection is not personal or mutual advantage, because it, it can sound like this is sort of a utilitarian thing. It's not. It's not utility so much as familiarity that is the key to affection. This is a really, this is the aha moment. And I know it still doesn't make sense, but hang with me on this. This is the thing to take away today. That it is familiarity that will become the key to the growth of, of affection more than anything else. Now, we see this with pets. Um, you see this all the time. A dog barks at a first-time visitor to the house who's never done him any harm. But what reason does he have to be averse to this first-time visitor to the house, whereas he wags his tail for an old acquaintance who's never done him any good. <laughs> the old acquaintance who he's seen a lot coming out, never petted him once on the head, never said, oh, you're a good dog, never any of that stuff, and yet the dog's you know, all excited about seeing Henry, who's just stopped by, you know, to uh, fix the plumbing, I don't know. Um, it's the familiarity that somehow unlocks the, the affection. Uh, my first dog in life was a Springer Spaniel named Bounder. He was white and he was brown. Springers are supposed to be bright and beautiful water dogs. Bounder was the dumbest, homeliest Spaniel you've ever seen. He had a flatulence issue that I don't even want to talk about. <laughs> He made a beeline for any body of water he could find. And we had a pool and we lived near a pond, so he was in the water all the time. He could not swim. That's the only thing, he, when I say he was not bright, he couldn't swim. His back legs didn't work. I nearly drowned dozens of times, stopping him from drowning. There was nothing about Bounder that you would regard as commendable, okay? but we became very familiar with one another. 
And he would be there every day when I came home from school. And I came to love him. And I wept hot tears when I lost it. I had storge, storge for him. Great, great storge for him. The funny thing about storge is that you don't usually notice it as it's beginning. Uh, it sneaks up on you. Uh, by the time you become aware that you feel affection for, for someone, the experience has actually long since started. There's this subtle sense of comfort or safety or pleasure in the company of the other. There's this almost unconscious feeling of connection that uh, sometimes has to do with this certain mix of needs and, and gifts. There's this ability to be in the presence of that other one with all of their quirks and, and warts and weird ways of doing stuff. And, and um, in, in a sense, their otherness. But that very otherness becomes an adventure. It, it becomes a relief from my meanness, my relentless me-focusedness. Um, and their other way of being in the world somehow becomes something I no longer, you no longer reject, but, but start to appreciate. But start to appreciate. Storge is what you have the chance to nurture when you're thrown together on a mission trip with a bunch of strangers. Storge is what you get the chance to, to, to build up when, you're, when you join a small group <laughs> where you don't know everybody else in the circle, or you get thrown into a, a work group in your place of employment uh, with a really odd collection of people, or when you find yourself during a flight delay with a whole group of people you would never have chosen to meet in nature. You would never hang with those people. Storge is what you're being given a chance to develop. Storge is what gets explored in movies like The Odd Couple and The Breakfast Club and Enemy Mine and Bridesmaids and my new favorite, Arrival. It's what's being explored, the power of, of Storge. It obviously doesn't work every time. Sometimes familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Sometimes it does. Um, sometimes we actually need to protect ourselves and distance ourselves. Sometimes we rightly need to build walls. We rightly need to erect fences against strangers that would hurt us or rob us or diminish the way of life of those around us. Sometimes we need to do this. But here's the reality that, that haunts me, that balances me as I think about that instinct that's there for me as much as for anybody. If I live in a world where I'm only with my kind of people, if I spend my whole life, or most of it, in an environment where I'm with thoroughbred horses, right, and beautiful, perfect, smart dogs, and with no babies that cry at night and mess up other things, um, if I never admit into my circle of familiarity somebody of a very different political persuasion or an entirely different cultural background, if I know no refugee, I know no immigrant in a personal kind of way, 
If I've never really, if I'm not really going deep with a person of a different race, religion, uh, creed, way of life, am I going to grow in my capacity to love? What do you think? I think not. I think I'm kind of stuck. And I don't want to be stuck. Do you want to be stuck? If love is the preeminent thing. So let's forget political policy and all the stuff that swirls in our society for the moment and just ask about personal policy. What is our personal plan for growing the kind of love and heart God has? What's our strategy individually? And who do you and who do I need to, to pursue relationship with, deep familiarity with, in order to advance the growth of that kind of loving capacity. In his brilliant book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this, and with this I'll close. Affection does not expect too much. Just sit with that for a minute. A lot of us expect a lot. Affection does not expect too much. It opens our eyes to goodness we would not have seen or should not have appreciated without it. Affection teaches us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, then to finally appreciate the people who just happen to be there. And Lewis adds, would we go so far as to say now that everything's kumbaya, everything's happy, that these people are made for us? Thank God, no, says Lewis. For a lot of these people that we're now familiar with, they are themselves odder than we could have believed and worth far more than we could have guessed. And in this realization, in this aha, in the way that our heart surprisingly turns toward that other, we grow up and become just a bit more like God. Let's pray together. We have marked the words of Scripture, Lord. We know there will be terrible times in the last days. We know that people will be lovers of themselves and money. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, people without love. But you have called out your church to be the alternative society, to be the salt and the light that this earth needs, 
you have called us to love others the way you love them. And we confess that we don't begin to know how to love at that level. All we think of is the risks, the downsides, the limits. So we're starting at the bottom, Jesus. Help us to go out this week and just start to become familiar with someone who needs a little affection and then see where you lead us from there. For this we pray in the name of you who are love in all its fullness. Amen.